You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 242. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Support for this podcast comes from ABC presenting Kevin Probably Saves the World, the new drama that will change the way you feel about the universe. Kevin isn't so great at life. He's lost his job, his girlfriend, and now he's back living with his sister and niece. But things take a turn when Kevin learns his true calling. He's been chosen to save the world. Jason Ritter stars and Kevin Probably Saves the World, and it premieres Tuesday at 10, 9 central on ABC. If you guys check this out and you like The Lively Show Season 4, this series looks like a great fit for a fun, uplifting, and really awesome show. Now let's move on. This is a very interesting episode, but before we get to that, let me say that I am cruising on the Abraham Hicks cruise right now. I'm in the French Riviera, and today we just got into Malta, which I've never been to before, so I'm excited to start exploring after I record this introduction for you. And before I go and do that, of course, let's talk about today's episode really quickly before we dive in. This episode is with Jacob Lieberman. Jacob Lieberman, you may or may not know the name, but if you listen to the episode I shared a few weeks back about why I'm trying to heal my eyesight naturally, Jacob Lieberman is the man that I can thank for not wearing glasses for the last month. Jacob is the one that wrote the book, Take Off Your Glasses and See, and it was really the turning point for me when it came to learning why and how you can heal your eyesight naturally. So that same day that that episode aired, I got an email from Jacob Lieberman himself. So some wonderful Lively Show listener, thank you, whomever you are, knows Jacob's son or sent it to Jacob's son, the episode, and Jacob's son sent it to Jacob. Jacob, and then he listened and wrote me. So I am so thrilled to have him on the show and to be able to have this very profound conversation. And I'm going to say I am (laughs) still learning from this episode. You're going to hear my mental wheels churning and just going a mile a minute in the second half of this episode as he was describing consciousness as he feels or experiences it. So obviously, you're going to be able to tell that Jacob's had some incredibly profound conclusions and realizations in his own life, and he's trying to share the best he can with what he believes consciousness is based on his direct experience. It's truly a fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's go to the show. Jacob, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Jess, it is a delight to be with you today. It's a beautiful day in Maui. I'm just excited to share this time together with you. When I saw your email in my inbox the day of the interview that aired when I talked about this, I was like, what a beautiful circumstance of flow. So so thankful that you're here and that I get to speak with you. But let's first start with how you got to where you are. Oh my gosh. Well, there are millions of experiences I could share with you, but the one that comes up that I think is related to our conversation today and probably of interest to your audience is what happened to my vision. I was a a child uh, with a reading problem and I never read much as a kid and I thought I was stupid. I thought there was something wrong with me. And then uh, when I finally started college, The reading demand was so great that within 10 days, I became nearsighted and I was given a prescription. And even though I could see better reading, I couldn't do it more than a couple minutes before I fell asleep. So when I finished my undergraduate work and started my medical work, after two years, I thought I was going to be asked to leave because I was just barely getting by in school. 
And they suggest that I go down to the clinic and have a vision examination. And the fourth year student who was examining me, like all the other eye doctors I'd seen before, said, you need a stronger pair of glasses. Probably the same experience all of our listeners today have had. So he gave me a prescription for the stronger pair of glasses, but he noticed, he said, you know, your eyes are not working together very well. And he suggested I do these simple little exercises, but I just took this device he gave me and I stuck it in the corner of my room. And one day when I was doing my homework, the same thing happened that always happened. After about five minutes, I fell asleep. When my eyes opened, the first thing that caught my eye was that device that I had left sitting two months prior in the corner of my room. For some reason or other, the fact that it caught my eye inspired me to get up, pick it up, put it together, and use it for maybe about three or four minutes. When I finished, I just sat down and I picked up my book again that I was reading before I'd fallen asleep. To my amazement, I read for an hour nonstop. I had never read for that long in my life without feeling distracted or sleepy. And I had never read with that level of understanding. It was such a profound experience that when I realized that an hour had passed, and yet I had no idea it passed, it just happened so quickly, I found myself crying. And it was almost as if a light went on in my awareness and the realization that I'm not stupid. And I did this little technique that he suggested for me a couple minutes a day for about two months. And then I made Dean's List every quarter until I graduated. And not only did I end up with one doctorate, but I then got a second doctorate. And then when I was finished with the doctorate game, someone awarded me a third doctorate. Point I'm trying to make is nothing to do with my doctorates is that I thought there was something wrong with me. And this very small little suggestion, which I will share with your listeners today, was a quantum leap for me. It, it was a paradigm shift to change my entire life. And that was in 1971. In 1976, after I'd been in practice for several years, I was doing work with kids that had learning issues because that was something that was so dear and near to my heart. But I decided to see, was it possible to reduce my dependency upon glasses? Because I was wearing glasses all the time and couldn't see without them and couldn't drive without them and so on. And so I started spending a little time each day without them on, sort of like what you said that you had been doing. I just took them off sometimes and then put them on. So for instance, when I came home at the end of the day, I'd take them off and leave them by the door and try to see what it felt like for me to not have my glasses on when I was in a safe environment like my home. And then I started taking short walks without them and so on. And then after a month or two, I started reducing my prescription gradually. Not the whole thing, just in very small increments, almost as if I was inviting 
my eyes, my brain, my mind, my everything to just stretch a little bit, but not stretching to such a degree that it became stressful, but stretching to a small degree. The whole idea was not to stress the system by pushing it, but basically to follow the guidance of the intelligence of my body rather than trying to push forth with my idea of what I thought was going to improve my eyesight. I waited until there was a a sense of comfort with where I was at and then I reduced the prescription a small amount so that it was almost like stretching your body to a place that was reachable rather than trying to stretch to a place that was not reachable and ending up feeling like you failed. And so I did that for a while and my natural eyesight without my glasses got better and I was able to see pretty good even with a reduced prescription. But then I had a revelation uh, that occurred that was incredibly profound for me. Uh, At the time, I was meditating each day, which was something that I had learned in the early 70s. It was a Sunday, and I took my glasses off, and I was in my bedroom, and I started to meditate. Closed my eyes. I don't know exactly what I was doing, but obviously breathing and so on. And somewhere in the midst of this meditation, there is an awareness of myself in the room. There was just a sense, almost as if something was observing me sitting in the room meditating. And everything that was visible at the time I thought through the mind's eye was totally clear and scintillating. It was, uh, it was almost alive. It wasn't like seeing something clear when you look out into space. It was as if everything was clear, not just the picture that I was seeing, but there was a sense that everything was known. I don't know how to explain that. It wasn't a feeling like I know everything. The I wasn't there. There was just a sense that everything was clear and everything was known. And I continued in my meditation And when I finally came out of my meditation, several things struck me very profoundly. The first was that when I opened my eyes, my eyesight was crystal clear. I mean really crystal clear at a level that I had not remembered in years because I had been wearing glasses for about nine and a half years at that time. The other thing that was profound was that I realized that during this meditative experience, whatever was seeing so clearly in there, it seemed to be seeing from everywhere. Now, again, I don't know how to explain that because we don't really have languaging for that. But when I was first asked, what did it feel like? I found myself spontaneously saying, It felt as though I had become the sky. Whatever was seeing was everywhere at the same time. And because I was so astounded by my eyesight being clear, 
I immediately got in my car and drove myself to my office. Because my license said I needed my glasses to drive, the glasses were not on my face, but they were on the seat next to me just in case a police officer pulled me over for any reason. I went to my office. I sat in my chair 20 feet away from the wall where I projected the eye charts that I use with my patients. And I started projecting one eye chart after the next that I had never seen before and started reading the letters. And consistently, I was seeing 300% better than I had seen before this experience when I took my glasses off. I thought this was rather profound. I knew that it was impossible. I was told and trained that this kind of thing could not appear, could not happen, and yet it was happening to me. And so I decided to examine myself, which I had never done before. And you know, when you go to the eye doctor's office, they sit you behind an instrument, it's called a phoropter, and then they ask you questions, is it better number one or number two, and they change the, the lenses accordingly. Well, I couldn't tell what I was doing because I wasn't looking at the machinery from the front, but I was looking at the letters and changing the dials, and when I got to what was the optimal level of clarity, just before I came out from the back of the device to look at what it said, I was sure that it would indicate no prescription because even though that was supposed to be impossible, I could not imagine how could I be seeing 300% better and, and still show nearsightedness and a significant amount of astigmatism? Well, to my amazement, when I came out from behind the device, the prescription in the device was almost identical to what was in my glasses. So let me explain that to you because that was very hard for me to understand. Here I'm seeing 300% better with my own eyes, without squinting, without effort, and I checked myself over and over again on eye charts I had never seen. I knew that was accurate. So I'm seeing 300% better, but the optical measurements of my eyes that are used to give someone a prescription had not changed at all. And I'm wondering, how can that be? How can I be seeing clearly and still be nearsighted with a significant amount of astigmatism. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that whatever is seeing within us is something more than just our eyes. And so I spent the next four or five years after that actively doing an experiment on myself, which I called an experiment on the workings of my mind. And what I was trying to assess was, was there a button somewhere within my mind-brain complex that if I could access that button, I could open up my whole system? Now, you're a lot younger than I am, but when I was a child going to school, the janitors in the school, they had to be able to get into every room in the school. And so they had what was called a master key. It was one key that would open up all the doors. When I was doing this experiment, I was in search of the master key. Is there a master key into the mind that if I could access it, 
I could re-experience this. And the reason I wanted to do that was so that I could share this with others because it was such a life-changing experience for me. Well, I never quite found that master key, although I noticed that my most profound levels of seeing occurred when I was looking for nothing. In other words, what came to me was that when we look for one thing in life, we miss everything we're not looking for. And the things that occur in our life by surprise, if you will, when we're not looking for them, the epiphanies are the things we call revelations, realizations, miracles, and so on. And what I discovered was the more I tried to accomplish something, the more I attempted to get what I wanted, the less I was able to achieve it. It was like, let's say you're in a pool and you're trying to move your hand through the water. The faster you try to move your hand, the more resistance acts upon your hand. But if the hand just moves very gradually, the resistance minimizes. I found the same thing to be true with eyesight and vision. I should tell you before I go further that this happened in 1976. So that was 41 years ago. I have never had a pair of glasses on my face since that day. I'm going to be 70 in November. I don't use glasses for distance and I don't use any glasses for reading. What's very interesting is I used to be nearsighted with a significant amount of astigmatism. Now I am farsighted with even more astigmatism, which should mean that reading and seeing in general is going to be worse than it used to be, but it isn't. In fact, I just had a vision exam recently, and even though one of my eyes is not seeing as well as it used to because I have what are called a few floaters in that eye, which is something that happens sometimes as we age and sage. But in general, my eye doctor can't imagine with the prescription that I have that I'm still able to see well past my driver's test and so on. So you say, how did I get here today? Those were two initial experiences that led me to realize in general, things do not work at all the way we think. That's the first thing. The second thing is the seeing mechanism, even though it involves the eye and it involves the mind, is actually something that you might say is beyond both. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. I'm sitting in a chair right now, and as I'm speaking with you, I'm aware of the chair and my buttocks where they meet. I'm aware of my left elbow as it is meeting with the desk. I'm aware that my right forearm is on the little armrest of my chair, and I can feel that about two-thirds of my back are resting upon the backrest of the chair. So I'm fully aware of that. There's something that's aware that my lips are moving and making sounds that you call words. And every so often, there's an awareness that something passes through 
the mind. It could be a picture, it could be a word or something. That which is aware of what is occurring within the body and what is occurring within the conscious mind, the chatter that we often are aware of, that piece that is noticing all that, I believe is the source of the seeing. And that noticing aspect, which you could call awareness, is a field of eyes that is noticing what is occurring. From my experience, it does not speak, it does not make suggestions, it does not want things to change. It is merely a noticer, a witness of what is occurring. And this witnessing process, based on my direct experience, is going on continually. We lose sight of it because we have been indoctrinated to believe that the chatter that we hear, which we call thinking, but is actually worrying most of the time, we've been indoctrinated to believe that that is the decision maker. From my experience, it isn't. I'll give you an example. When we look up into the sky during the day, we see a big yellow-looking ball there called the sun, and we can see that the sun is giving us light. It's emitting light. At night, when the sky is dark and we look up, we once again see a bright yellow ball called the moon. And if we knew nothing about the sun and the moon, we would just naturally assume that just as the sun emits light, the moon also emits light. But if you study that, you realize that the moon doesn't emit any light. It is merely a reflection of sunlight. And it reflects that sunlight based on the angle that it is in relation to the sun. So if you can imagine the source of that light within us, the light of consciousness, if you will, is the light that is emitted from this field of awareness. That is what teachers used to speak about when they used to say, your first impression is always correct. That's that first sense of clarity that we receive on a continual basis. You could say it is the guidance from the intelligence of life. And the moment we become aware of it, the awareness is through the conscious mind. And so the light from that source of the intelligence of life is then reflected off the conscious mind's ideas or what you call beliefs. And beliefs are each like something that causes a mirror to bend one way or the other. If you've ever gone to an amusement park where they had a hall of mirrors, you walk into this room and they have these convex and concave and distorted mirrors. And when you look at them, your body might look really tall or really wide or your facial expression might appear distorted. Well, that's not really you. But if you didn't know that, you'd think that was you. Well, when this light of knowing from this field of awareness is reflected off the conscious mind's ideas about life, what happens is if we don't know any different, 
we sense that that is the source of the light. But what it is actually is a reflection that is extremely limited based upon one's point of view. So it doesn't at all allow us to see the full picture. It only allows us to see something based on what we believe. And that's incredibly important in terms of seeing because we've all been led to believe that our beliefs are true. And if we find that they're limiting, then we must change our beliefs. But if you go to a thesaurus online and you look up the word beliefs, you will see a belief means the same as idea, concept, theory, thought, etc. If you then look down at the antonyms, the opposite of belief, you'll be struck to see that one of the words that is the opposite of belief is truth. T-R-U-T-H. And so we spend a lot of time dealing with beliefs, but our beliefs are not truth. They are not the truth that the Bible described when it said, the truth shall set you free. And so this, for me, what I discovered through this initial vision experience is that there is an aspect of our humanity that guides us based on truth and based on constantly moving us toward our maximum potential in life. So what I find for myself right now is that most of the time I am not seeing through my eyes. I get a flash about things often before those things occur, although at the time they happen, I have no idea that something is going to occur later or not. But when it occurs later, if it does, I find myself totally surprised, often brought to tears because it's like, it's so profound, this intelligence of life that can see and envision at a level that we cannot even begin to imagine. And so the seeing mechanism is the same as the guiding mechanism that guides not only our lives, but guides the planets through their orbit, guides the movement of the tides, the movement of the seasons, guides the entire physiological process, none of which do we have any control over, and guides the movement of what we call the environment and probably everything in between. That is beautiful. Thank you so much. I have so many questions, if that's okay. We're ready. Okay. So one is, I just looked up the stat. I was curious on how many people have glasses. And apparently on Google, if you search, it's apparently maybe in the US, some statistics said six out of 10. So are the four that are seeing fine, seeing through this source that you're speaking of? Or is it just that their eyes don't have the limitations? Well, first of all, the statistics that you are quoting are old. At the current time, two-thirds of the U.S. and world's population wear glasses, number one. But many people beyond that had vision issues that may or may not be related to eyesight. 
if you look, for instance, which I think this is even going to be much more significant to you because I believe you said you were nearsighted, about 90% of college students in industrialized and civilized nations, you know, like the US and China and Japan and Singapore and Israel and Europe are nearsighted. About 90%. 90. 90% of college students. When you go into graduate work and postgraduate work, it goes higher. To give you an idea, you see, nearsightedness, it's very rare to be born nearsighted. Most nearsightedness is a response to a restriction in our field of perception. Let me explain to you what that means. When we're children, we're playing a lot. Now, most kids today are not outside playing. Most kids today are playing with their iPhones. And so you're finding this incidence of nearsightedness growing by the day because we have about 7 billion people in the world and we have about 6.8 cell phone users. 6.8 billion. Almost everyone on the earth has a cell phone. And a cell phone is asking you to look at a field of vision that is maybe two inches by five inches or four inches. But before we got cell phones and tablets and computers, we spent so much of our time reading. Reading was the way that we supposedly are learning. And so the nearsighted epidemic really began when we started reading to any significant degree. And what you notice is that the populations that do the greatest amount of reading, the greatest amount of computing, or the greatest amount of time on handheld devices are the ones that are most nearsighted. And that occurs for two reasons. One, because they're limiting their field of vision to a very small area. And two, because they usually spend a lot less time outdoors. And light and space is needed so that our own field of awareness and field of perception remains very, very broad. When a person becomes nearsighted, they literally compress their field of perception so that it becomes smaller. To give you an example, I know that you are nearsighted. I think you had mentioned in the interview that I heard that you wore like minus four glasses somewhere in there. That may be incorrect, but that's what I seem to remember. Yes. If you look through your glasses, if you just are looking straight out and then you just put the glasses in front of your eyes just momentarily, you'll notice a few things happen. Everything will become clear, but everything will also become smaller and closer. It literally minimizes the world you're looking at and brings it closer to you. Well, when a person becomes nearsighted, much of the nearsightedness is not only related to the demand of the culture that we read, spend time on computers, or that everyone has a cell phone. But nearsightedness is also a response when we get frightened about something. When something happens in our life that shocks our system, especially when we're young, 
you know, if you maybe you went to a movie when you were a kid and it was a scary movie. And when something scary happened, usually the child will literally bring their knees up to their chest and cover their eyes. They will literally compress themselves like a little ball. Well, that physical movement is actually what happens to the field of perception, the non-visible field of awareness that surrounds the body. It literally compresses. And so when we experience something in our life that we're not able to integrate, that we're not able to digest, if you will, in our life, the response to it is that we compress our world in order to create a situation where we feel safe and secure. And so we can't see far away anymore because we've compressed our world. So when the doctor gives you glasses, the glasses don't expand your perception that has been compressed by your fear. It literally compresses the world to fit where you have compressed your own world into. And so this is why once we get glasses, we find that every year or two, we need stronger ones. Because when we get glasses, aside from making things clearer, they eliminate this buffer zone. This, when we compress our own perception, we do that to create some space between ourselves and some aspect of our life's experience that feels a little scary or uneasy for us. When we get glasses, it literally puts the world right back on top of us where it originally was. And in order for us to maintain a sense of safety, we have to compress our world even further. And so we become more nearsighted. And this is why, like I said, almost everyone that wears glasses finds themselves needing stronger and stronger and stronger glasses. For me, it was always amazing that eye doctors noticing their patients progressively getting worse for whatever reason never put it together that if a problem continues to get worse, the solution being used cannot possibly be the solution. So for me, there is a epidemic of nearsightedness, specifically in vision deterioration, to give you an idea of the true size of it. It is the biggest health epidemic in the world right now. Hardly anyone is born needing glasses. Almost everyone gets glasses as they get older and older. And so it's quite fascinating because we would never put up with something like that happening with the rest of our body. You know, if, uh, if we broke a leg, we might need braces for a while, but you know, no physical therapist would say you have to wear braces for the rest of your life, hopefully. But yet, this is what occurs with our vision. So from my experience, I've come to uncover that there are many facets with our vision that can frequently help to reduce our dependency upon the glasses. The most profound part of the process is not necessarily regaining perfect eyesight or even regaining eyesight. The most profound piece of it is the insight that one recovers and reintegrates into their own life. It's almost like some part of yourself that you left years before. 
the insights that come from the process of just noticing what occurs when you remove your glasses is absolutely profound. It's not just, oh, I can't see. It's, oh, I feel out of control. Oh, I feel uncomfortable because what if I don't recognize them? What are they going to think? There are so many things that come up. And when people begin to notice all the little aspects of their emotional life and the mind's chatter that arises when they remove their glasses, as they are able to more comfortably be with some of those things that surface, they gently begin to dissolve. And as they dissolve, very often our vision improves and we are able to actually utilize a weaker prescription and still see adequately well. So there are many things that occur from the process of experimentation, like what you're going through. And rather than focusing on eventually, oh, I'm going to get to the place where I see without my glasses. I don't know if that is possible or not for everyone any more than a spontaneous remission is possible for everyone. But the journey of discovery is absolutely priceless. We have an expression, it's not who wins or loses, but how you play the game. We so often are focused on one thing and we miss everything else going on. There's a profound level of discovery that occurs in this process of just simply removing one's glasses. And most people, if they took their glasses off and checked their eyesight, and there are many downloadable eye charts that you can get from Google that are set up for a 10-foot distance, so you don't even need a 20-foot distance. And if they took their glasses off and just checked to see what their eyesight was without their glasses, and even if they couldn't see the chart at all, they could walk up gradually until they got to the first point where they could see the biggest letters. And they could say, okay, I can see the 2400 letter at five feet away. If they leave their glasses off for probably no more than 30 minutes to an hour, and then if they had another eye chart to set up at the same distance, almost everyone would notice an improvement. And I don't mean like a letter. It might be a few lines. It's significant. So what's important about that is that it shows you that the intelligence of your body is letting you know that there is a possibility for change here. And so you can use something as simple as the example I just gave you to say, oh, I'm actually seeing better. And if you're seeing better, more than likely you could see just as well with a slightly weaker prescription. This is so incredible. You're truly, I feel like, channeling at this point. So one thing I can say is I've gone cold turkey after reading the book. Reading the book, I couldn't undo what I knew. And then I got to live with the anxiety you spoke about. This point, I'm now, I think, two or three weeks in of not wearing them. I've had to put them on twice. And those two moments were to read a menu board that I couldn't see on a wall. But I've flown 
different states. I have not driven. So if anyone's asking or thinking, I have not had to drive a car. So I would wear them for that, but I haven't needed to do that. So I've lived my life. And at first, reading for the show was actually the biggest issue. You're speaking to me because I was so stressed by the idea of having to do an episode that I'd have to read on the screen that I decided to just talk about the site instead, where that wasn't the original plan. But I'm so excited that the flow of all of that did because now I'm speaking to you rather than just thinking about the book you wrote. Okay, so I've now done it. Now I'm at the point where I'm just used to it. This is my new normal. It doesn't bother me any longer. It just is what it is. And I've had the ability to also see your example that you share in the book, which is that sight is ever in flux and that when I'm on a long 10-mile walk, which initially was a scary proposition, I've now done it five times maybe, and now it's my favorite thing because I see the best while I'm in the walk. And I've gotten to do the sunning you spoke about and see the sunning and the palming is when I see the most. But then indoors on man-made objects, it's very difficult. On leaves, it's very easy. It's so interesting to see that my eyes have a much easier time with nature outside than it does with the indoors and anything that is flattened or, or man-made. Is that something that people find? I want to share something with you because you've just said something really profound, which is actually much bigger than you may have imagined when you said it. You said when you're outside, you feel totally at home in nature. You can see leaves and so on. But you said, when I'm looking at man-made objects, I can't see them as well. And you said they're flat. They don't have the same level of dimensionality. Yes. So let me tell you what I heard when you said that. What I heard you say is that which we create from our ideas, let's call it man-made, does not have the dimensionality, the depth of nature, and does not provide clarity. Why that is so important is because most of us are living life according to our ideas rather than one's direct experience, which a direct experience is one of those rare moments when you have an epiphany and you see through the eyes of God, it's not that even that you see, there's a level of clarity and knowing without a knower that is absolutely touching. And when you are out in nature and your eyes are not looking and you come to a place of feeling at home, at ease, trust, if you will, all of a sudden, all kinds of things start coming to you rather than you trying to make things happen. You notice that life is actually looking for you. And so what you begin responding to is everything that catches your eye. And the reason that things catch our eye is literally to guide us on the next step of our life's journey. One thing I find interesting is that it's almost counterintuitive because when I'm in this 
circle, this little bubble of clarity that's within maybe my arm's reach, if that. I'm looking at the screen probably two feet away and it's blurry. And I feel like I'm almost more closed into my thoughts because I can't see beyond this little bubble. So it's almost counterintuitive to think what's going to catch my eye is going to be very close up, I guess. (laughs) Well, actually, what catches your eye is light. It is light looking for your eye rather than your eye looking for the light. We are under the misconception that the eye is designed to look for things. It doesn't look for anything. The eye only responds to that which catches it. And the reason something catches your eye is to bring something to your awareness and attention so that your system can respond to it automatically at the speed of light. And this occurs way before you are even aware of it consciously. So these unconscious processes are occurring at light speed, literally. They are at the quantum level of reality, and they are inseparable from the intelligence of life that is guiding and animating the movement of everything. But to get now back to the very practical piece of something you said, you said, I'm comfortable. I'm not using my glasses other than twice for three weeks. So this is the next step for you and for any of your listeners that may wish to experiment. One, you could go see an optometrist wherever you are, and you can just say, I have been wearing minus fours, but I'm doing an experiment. I'm experimenting to see how things are for me without my glasses, and I've become quite comfortable right now. What I would like you to do, please, is tell me what is the weakest prescription that would allow me to see well enough with both eyes open to pass my driver's test. Don't tell me what prescription will give me 20-20. Don't tell me what's the best prescription for the right eye versus the left eye. What is the weakest prescription with both eyes open that will allow me to just pass my driver's test? Now, you might find in your case... At this point, it might be minus three or it might be minus two. And if you could get a copy of that, then in those moments when you say, gosh, I need to see that menu over there at the airport or that board, rather than putting on your minus fours, which is like really shocking your system, put on maybe a minus two, which will allow you to see what you're looking for but not shock your system as much. So you can do that by seeing the eye doctor. There's also quite a few websites where people can go, literally put in the prescription they want and order glasses very inexpensively. I mean, very inexpensively. So many people can go onto these websites And maybe order a prescription that's 20% or 25% weaker than their prescription, and they can begin an experiment. Now, I don't suggest anyone who really has a strong prescription to go and drive without their glasses, although I used to 
suggest to people go into an empty parking lot if you want to experiment with someone else with you. So you can just begin to see that even though I don't see as clearly as I did with my glasses, I actually can drive in this parking lot pretty good. It's not to tell you that you'll be able to drive on the turnpike as comfortably. You won't probably. But every time that we do something that reflects to us that we have an ability that we didn't believe that we had before, a sense of trust, a sense of confidence merges with us again. And it inspires us to take the next step. So for you personally, Jess, you know, I think that if you could get a pair of minus two glasses, which is 50% weaker than what you're wearing, that would be a great aid for you so that you didn't have to go back to the old prescription. You could go to something weaker and then over time do it gradually. So when I have worked with clients over the years on vision improvement, rather than sharing with them to remove their glasses unless they have a mild prescription to begin with, I basically reduce it gradually, very gradually, so that their system can continue to readjust, readjust, and readjust. Very often, I recommend these glasses that are actually the opposite of nearsighted glasses, that when they put them on, it makes things even slightly blurrier, but it causes a relaxation response both in their eyes, in their mind, and in their body. And then when they remove those glasses, their eyesight has actually improved further. Kind of like altitude training. Yes, there's a lot of different things that one can do. But again, this is the key thing. My mother, God bless her soul, she's passed on, but she had cancer four times in her life. And the first one, she wasn't supposed to live but a month. She lived another almost 50 years. She passed on at 91. And my mother didn't have cancer when she passed. Now, that's miraculous. And it's also very rare. You know, uh, most people who have these kinds of things may not have that experience, and many people do. Why am I sharing this with you? We're led to believe that if we really got this down, we should be able to make things happen the way we want them. And I have discovered something very powerful in my lifetime, and I've experienced many, many, many things, physical and emotional, because I'm very sensitive. Life typically does not provide us what we want. It provides us what we need. What we need in order to experience our maximum potential. What we need in order to fulfill our reason for being. What we need to spurt our evolution. And what we need is usually something that is not obvious to us. It's outside our field of perception. The amount we see in terms of what is available is minuscule. The amount of actual decision-making that is supposedly coming from the conscious mind is minuscule. The highest percentages are probably 5%, but many believe that none of our decisions come from the conscious mind. 
And we could have a big discussion about that. All I'm saying is trust your own direct experience. Whatever is true for each person individually is the path that they are on and need to follow because it's taking them somewhere. So I've shared many different things today. And what I always share with people is don't believe anything I say. However, if I've said something that rings true for you, then what I have shared is merely reawakening what you already know and you can trust what you know. And so this is just a sharing of something of my own life's experience and I'll share much more if you like. And each person who is listening takes what is of value to them and leaves what is not of value to them. There's no need to agree with anything I say, nor to disagree with anything I say. Just take what is of value, there is a value, and leave the rest behind, which will happen automatically anyway. I love it. Earlier, you shared your analogy of the child at the movie theater. And what I intuited from that, the visual I had, the analogy, I like to make analogies, was that it's almost like we have, you would call it an aura or an energetic field. So imagine it as, for those listening, like a paper ball. And that over time, that ball, like you said, as we become fearful and the emotions become scary for us to deal with, crinkles in, like you're wadding up a piece of paper. And each time the, the prescription gets stronger, the piece of paper, the paper ball gets even more squished. And by taking off the glasses, we're beginning to loosen up those crinkles and try to re-expand the ball. Is that the way you would say that's what you're trying to describe? I'm going to share another analogy, which is exactly like the one you just shared, and it will allow the listeners to relate to it in a slightly different way. All day long, if you tune into your body, you will notice that your body is continually inflating like a balloon and then deflating and then inflating and deflating. And this is going on not only throughout your body but throughout the entire universe. Everything in this universe is continually inflating and deflating and then inflating again. We call it the respiratory cycle, but that isn't what it is. And we don't even breathe on our own. Something is actually initiating and animating that process for everything in this universe. One of the things that I've discovered over the years of working with many, many thousands of people and a lot of professional and high-level athletes and performers is that when they get scared, their breath is temporarily held. When they put effort into something, their breath is held. When they are, their breath is held. And every time they start thinking, their breath is held. Now, what do those incidents have in common? When we are efforting at something, it is because on some level, we do not have a sense that our natural response will be enough. When we are uh, trying to figure things out and trying to figure out how we can be successful at something, it's because we don't think we're going to be successful. And so 
what's common about those things? We're afraid. We're afraid that things are not going to work out the way we want them. We're afraid that we're not going to look or make an appearance that we think is the appearance we would want to make. And out of that fear, we hold our breath. So why am I sharing this with you? Is we are all habituated to thinking ahead, to trying to figure out everything internally where no one else can see it so that we can make the best appearance possible. We prepare our talks and our lectures and our everything we do to make it look perfect. But life does not have that level of perfection. It, it just has those leaves and those things that you mention that you have a very different relationship with than man-made things where you actually see them with greater ease. So because we are all very habituated to continually thinking, which I actually call worrying, we are continually contracting that sphere that you described, that bubble, making it smaller. So every time that we go into the mind to try to figure something out, because we would like things to come out our way, we diminish the size of that sphere, which is diminishing the aspect of our humanity that impacts the world. So it's so interesting because I've been studying a lot about the subconscious and the power of it and the interplay with the conscious. And what's interesting is what I think your mindset would be, aside from sight here for a second, but just the, the philosophy and of living that you're saying is more of a being breathed and being moved and being channeling the greater source energy through us. And right now I've been in a really interesting phase about learning from the turn of the century thinkers that talked a lot about the power of the subconscious and using our consciousness to direct it in directions we want to go to create our reality, to visualize and to focus on our vibrations, our frequency, our energy towards what is wanted as if it is already here. So I'm very curious, based on your experiences and your perspective, what your thoughts are on using consciousness to create and that being a part of why we have it. So first of all, Freud, I think, was the first one that spoke of the subconscious. The word subconscious is rarely, if ever, used anymore in the literature. Uh, it's more a term that's very commonly used in New Age literature, but it's rarely, if ever, used anywhere else. It's typically called the unconscious. So why is something unconscious? which means something we are unaware of because it is integrated with the intelligence of life so that it continually working without our awareness to keep us alive and working well. For instance, everything in your body is running from that unconscious. Everything in your body is running from that unconscious. In fact, there is nothing in your body physiologically that is designed to initiate action. Everything in the body is designed to respond to something. What is it responding to? So let's use the example of a plant. 
a plant does not grow on its own and it doesn't grow this way versus this way and it doesn't decide what kind of fruit or no fruit it's going to make. The entire plant's life is guided by light. The plant itself is materialized light. In fact, all matter is actually light that appears frozen to us. That's based on the physics literature, not any ideas that I have. So just as that plant is guided by light, and physicists, when they speak about light, they say light is the ground of all reality. Light is the energy that is foundational to everything. When you say to them, how does light behave? They will use different terminology, but the terminology they use, which would be probably not very understandable to us, mean the same, that light behaves as if it is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipresent everywhere at the same time. Now, that could be why the Bible equates God with light. It could be that scientists and spiritualists have been saying the same thing in very different words throughout history. But let's come back to your unconscious and the idea of using the conscious to change the unconscious. Or to direct it, to use it. I think of it as a 3D printer, and we're putting the program in there, or we can. We have the potential to if we're able to slow the brainwaves down enough to impress upon it. So that's sort of like, let's imagine that you went to the movies, and the unconscious was the whole movie. All the frames that were on the film strip, or the DVD, or whatever it was. Your conscious mind is you're seeing one frame of that movie, and from that one frame, you're going to change the whole movie based on that one frame. In other words, just commonsensically, do you think that looking through one frame at a film strip that has 100,000 little frames in it, do you think looking through that one frame, you can see enough to know what needs to be directed and to direct it? Well, I've actually, to be honest, I've been trained in hypnotherapy and seen incredible transformations in very powerful short sessions with people that had issues like cerebral palsy or other things that are physical or non-physical issues. And when the regressions were happened and when the upgrades were made, they made those transitions, they made those shifts. And I genuinely have seen it with my own eyes and in my own experience. So I believe... <laughs> We're speaking about two different things. I believe uh, I've had the same experience with hypnotherapy as you have. Someone is taking me into a hypnotic state, getting me into a very relaxed state, infusing some possibilities, and at times those possibilities can have very, very profound effects. And um, and we chose those, and it's cho and, and here's what I'm saying: we chose those consciously to reinsert new programs and upgrade the hardware. When you say when you say we chose those consciously, let's take your experience of going to the hypnotherapist. What got you there? The fact that I didn't have a normal period for most of my life. Uh huh. And 
you had something that came to you one day and directed you to go there, didn't you? I flowed there, but you could say so, yes. So that's something that came to you and then inspired you or moved you to call the hypnotherapist. Consciously. Right. You consciously called the hypnotherapist. But what came to you that inspired you to do that? Well, I was at a conference where they were doing it and they had a workshop and I decided at that workshop to try it myself. So I'm suggesting something. We often say, I decided. This is just something for you to consider. There is something that I have experienced and continually experience, which is that things come to me from where I do not know. They come to me as a knowing, not as an idea. They don't come to me while I'm thinking. They come to me free of charge. And they trigger something that moves me in a certain direction. What I'm sharing with you is not that hypnotherapy may not have the impact that you're suggesting. I'm agreeing with you 100% on that. What I'm sharing with you is that it is part of that unconscious which you could say is the infinite field of potentiality because the unconscious is really quantum. It has no limitations like time and space and so on. It's a totally different realm than than the conscious, which is all limited by time and space and so on. We are continually receiving guidance via the unconscious which is the intelligence of life, which is coherent and congruent with everything else going on in this universe. In other words, the directive that's coming to us is integrated with everything else that's going on in this universe. It's not about Jacob or about Jess. It's something that's going to be for the betterment of the whole. When that inspiration or, or guidance comes in, It awakens something in us. So for me, this is the way I would describe it for your consideration. What comes to us and animates, causes us to move in a certain direction, is what we experience as inspiration. It literally breathes us to move in a certain direction, which is what I sense occurred for you Maybe even before you went to that conference where you saw that and said, oh, I'd like to do that. And then when we become aware of that inspiration, there's an automatic movement that moves us in that direction because that is going to allow us to fulfill our purpose for being. And that, when we become aware of it, is where inspiration is transformed into implementation. So what I'm saying is, it's not the unconscious or the subconscious, as you call it, versus the conscious, it's both. That the intelligence of life is guiding everything. It is the same thing that guides all the planets on the orbit, on their orbit surrounding the sun. That is the same animating force that is guiding each of our individual orbits or life's journey. And that we experience 
It's what the teacher said, your first impression. It's not a gut knowing or an instinct for me. It's something that's absolutely clear. I don't know where it comes from, but I experience it almost daily. And it comes in and it moves me in a certain direction. Next thing I notice, I'm excited about this new thing. It could be going to the hypnotherapist or it could be taking a course or whatever it is. And at that point, most of us are sure that we had a great idea. And all I'm suggesting is that that unconscious is what's providing the inspiration for us to fulfill our purpose for being. It's always moving us toward our maximum potential. So in my example, to pull an earlier analogy I think you shared, and this is so interesting for me because it's helping me understand my own beliefs better as we talk about this, because it's not spoken in this direct way from the stuff I've been studying so far. But what I hear you saying is almost, this is how I imagine it, as like a cycle. So the subconscious, unconscious guiding force has a program in my past. Let's use my example of the period in the RTT therapy. So I had this block. The inspiration flowed me from that deep place that also had that block in my own system to the workshop where I met the therapist. I consciously became aware of the situation at that level. And like the moon, it was the light reflecting from the subconscious onto the consciousness, which is the moon in my life. Then I took an action and that that action then resulted in, again, the sun, the subconscious in this case, getting healed. So it's almost as if the unconscious, subconscious, infinite intelligence healed itself using its own energy, but the consciousness of me just kind of reflected it at one point. And then usually we're just identifying ourselves with just the moon reflection. (laughs) Is that making sense? Uh, I don't know. When you say the unconscious getting healed, there is no healing in the unconscious. The unconscious is non-local consciousness. In other words, it doesn't have to do with things and forms, and ideas, and time, and space, and all of these things that we live in. It's not that realm whatsoever. Well, then wait, let me clarify for people then. So they're going to ask, well, what's stopping the period from happening if it's not the unconscious? Something is stopping your system, whether it is that you have something physical going on, whether you have an infection going on, whether you have some emotional trauma that's caused that system to shut down. Yes, it was emotional. So with that in mind, and that's actually very related to sight too, isn't the emotional trauma in the subconscious? That's what most literature would have us believe. Yeah, I don't know where the emotional trauma resides, I am sure that it is residing everywhere. And it is residing somewhere in the state that it is, not as a limitation. When we have an emotional trauma, the system does what it needs to do in order to keep us safe. And then life keeps bringing us experiences that knock on the door of those places and each time it brings something to the surface again and it resolves itself 
over time. You will notice that, you know, I don't know how old you are. 32. All right. Have you had relationships in your life? Yes. <laughs> okay. You might notice that the people that you were in relationship with, in some way, some of their behaviors or ways of being were similar to perhaps a parent that maybe you had some friction with. I don't know if that's the case for you, but I cannot tell you how often people find after a marriage or relationship ends that they say, gee, I married my father dressed as a woman, or I married my mother dressed as a man or whatever. And what I'm saying is that from my experience throughout my life, I keep finding that the remedy that we're trying to create to heal is actually being created continually. We are continually experiencing interacting with people that I call human homeopathic remedies. <laughs> that are reinfecting you at a low level. <laughs> but it's not an infection. They're revitalizing you. They're, they're literally bringing to awareness what can be seen at this stage of life. The healing doesn't occur as one felt swoop. It occurs over time that life, our life experience keeps distilling us over and over and over again. You know, we have this idea that we want things to occur faster. We want them to occur now. The question is, why isn't our system, which is functioning at levels we can't even imagine, why isn't it doing that if that's the right thing to do? And we need to recognize that this intelligence that guides the movement of the planets and everything else in Mother Nature is also guiding our entire physiology and our entire life. We're not separate from it. We are it. And so all I'm suggesting is that just as you said, how more at ease you feel out in nature, I'm saying that we are not observing nature. We are nature. That nature that you feel more at ease with also includes your own nature and the intelligence behind that. And all I'm suggesting is that you can trust that that is the intelligence that brought you to a place where you received the awareness to get the sense of, oh, I'm going to call the hypnotherapist. And then you have whatever sort of experience that you had, which was hopefully a very successful one. So what I'm sharing with you and is that none of us understand what's going on with any of these things. My ideas are no more of value than yours. You must follow what is guiding you, and I must follow what is guiding me. And today, I just had the pleasure sharing with you and your listeners Something about my life just to consider, just to consider the possibility that there's something very magical going on that is perhaps beyond anything we can conceive of that is moving us in a profound way. You know, if you look at the life of Jesus, Moses, the Dalai Lama, 
Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Ramana Maharshi, people throughout history who have made enormous impacts upon humanity or who we say were enlightened or the Buddha for that matter, you will notice something very much in common that they all share aside from the fact that they gained great wisdom and they touched many millions of people. And the one thing they share is not that they got what they wanted in life. The one thing they shared was that their life was difficult, that they went through great hardship, that many of them died of terrible illnesses, that many of them had difficulties in their life. Why am I sharing that? Because there's something to be learned from the lives of great people. And that is that if we have difficulties going on in our life, it may not mean that something is wrong. It may mean that we're right on the right track. That difficulties may just be the perturbing factor in our life that creates the expansion that triggers our awakening. We know for a fact that those same disturbing factors must be present in physics, biology, and chemistry, and mother nature for things to expand. Maybe the same thing is happening in our own nature, in our own biology, in our own chemistry, in our own physics. Thank you so much. That was a beautiful wrap up for this call. Thank you so much for so much to think about and for your inspiration. I'm so appreciative that you wrote the book and that I found it when I did and that you're here now on the show. It's truly just a amazing circle of fluidity and flow. And I have so much to think about now when it comes to the moon, the reflection, subconscious and consciousness. Thank you so much. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to be on this call today. I, I'm so, so grateful and appreciative. And there you have it. Jacob, thank you so much for coming on the show, and thank you for listening. And of course, you guys may notice this mic right now in the introduction and the outro is a little bit hot or squeaky or whatever. We're going to try to fix this for you guys very soon. As soon as I'm off the cruise, we're going to try to get a new mic, so this won't be an issue going forward. But anyways... If you want to send Jacob a message, you can do so over on Instagram at Jacob underscore Lieberman. And if you want to find me on Instagram, Snapchat, or Twitter, you can find me at Jess C as in contacts no more lively. And for show notes for today's episode, head over to JessLively.com slash Jacob Lieberman. And in case you're curious about my site so far, I've had some pretty profound moments of clarity, but nothing permanently shifting yet. However, I am now, I think, on my full first month of going without glasses 99.999% of the time. And it's really been fascinating to release the anxiety, I can at least say, feeling like, oh, I can't do X, Y, or Z if I'm seeing blurry or going, exploring different countries, traveling, etc. I've really realized I can do pretty much everything besides read a menu board or travel, like let's say on a, on a car. I wouldn't drive necessarily or or order on a menu on a wall. So those are the only two things so far that I found to be bigger issues. But everything else I find a way to do regardless of whatever my site is at that time. Before I share where I'm headed to next on this tour, I'd like to talk about today's sponsor, FreshBooks.com. If you need 
bookkeeping software and you don't love it as much as you love your favorite social media platform, please go try FreshBooks. FreshBooks has been my bookkeeping software since 2012. I've been using it loyally and loving it ever since. It's one of my favorite services that we have for all of the products that we use here on Team Lively. This is just a joy to log into. I love that it looks like my website with the colors and the, you know, my branding just automatically uploads and just makes the entire experience feel like I'm at home right away. And just it's so simple and easy. I get to send invoices, receive invoices. My bookkeeper goes in there easily. We can make accountant documents that my accountant needs whenever possible or necessary. And it just makes bookkeeping so simple, fun, and easy to do. So if you want to try this for 30 days, it's going to give you basically a month for free. Head over to freshbooks.com slash lively. I hope you love it as much as I do. And now for where I'm headed to next, let's see. We're in Malta today and Malta tomorrow. And then I think we have a C day. And then I'm going to end up in Venice. And from Venice, I fly to London for a quick two days before heading to another continent in the world, which I love very, very much. Until next week, may something wonderful happen to you today. 